Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale until Monday only, and you'll not only get your first 12 weeks in print and online for £12, but you'll also get a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey absolutely free. To claim this offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash whiskey. This offer is only available within the UK and you must be 18 or older to claim it. Hello, I'm Natasha Froze and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three of our writers to read their pieces out loud. Coming up on this week's show... David Swift writes about whether hope remains in Jaffa, Israel. Mary Wakefield on the civil services Say My Name campaign. And Peter Hitchens on his time in prison. First up, David Swift. When I first heard of the 7th of October attacks, I feared it would be the beginning of a war on several fronts. In Gaza, in northern Israel and in the West Bank. My biggest concern was that the high casualties from the retaliatory Israeli airstrikes would cause violence within Israel itself, as Palestinians in mixed cities such as Jaffa, where I live, took to the streets. This was exactly what happened two years ago, when mob violence erupted in Jaffa, Lod, Acre, and other areas where Jews and Muslims live side by side, in response to the clearance of the Muslim neighbourhood Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. During those riots, three people, two Jewish and one Arab, were killed. In some of the most gentrified parts of Jaffa, Palestinian youths torched cars and set up barricades. Yet for now, despite the death toll in Gaza passing 12,000, the mixed cities remain quiet and peaceful. For their part, Israeli Arab leaders have been quick to condemn the violence of 7th of October. I recently sat in on a Zoom meeting of around 400 Palestinians and Israelis from mixed cities across Israel, where Mohammed Baraka, chairman of the Arab Monitoring Committee, who had recently been arrested over plans to stage a protest against the war, was unequivocal. Even the prolonged suffering of the Palestinian people cannot justify the massacre of 7th of October, he said. There have also been various joint initiatives set up by Jews and Arabs, from blood donation drives in Shefa Anna to hospitality centres for those displaced by the war. Amir Basharat, CEO of the Council of Arab Authorities, lives in Jaffa and told Israeli media that the Hamas attack which claimed Arab and Jewish lives indiscriminately, increased the sense of a shared fate. As far as Hamas is concerned, there is no difference between an Arab and a Jew. They are all part of the occupying entity. That's why they also monstrously murdered more than 20 Arabs and kidnapped five. This attack, first and foremost, harmed the chance of establishing a Palestinian state. This is not a legitimate Palestinian resistance, It only harms the chances of ending the conflict. Basharat also argued that the 2021 riots contributed to the appointment of the ultra-nationalist Itamar Ben-Gavir to security minister. And so, quote, this time we are trying not to play into his hands. Many Arabs are angry at the lack of protest, Basharat added, but plenty of others feel the measured response has been wise. Another reason for the present quiet in mixed cities like Jaffa is the long-established social and economic link between Jews and Arabs. Right next to my flat is the Siksik Mosque, which is 150 years old. Elsewhere on my street, there are catering wholesalers and workshops, a remnant of the time when this was a solidly working-class area. The men who work there are middle-aged Mizrahi Jews, whose kippers are the only way to distinguish them from Palestinians. 
they have cordial relations with the imam, whom they have known for decades. Old Jaffa had become one of the most popular tourist destinations in Israel, as well as a hub for Western expats, from tech workers to NGO activists. But many of these people left the country within days of 7th of October and have not returned, the plants on their balconies brown and desiccated. For local Palestinian business owners, the past seven weeks have been tough. Most cafes and bars are shuttered. The local off-license, run by Palestinian Christians, is usually packed with customers heading to Jaffa Beach, but it is empty when I visit now. The man who runs my local fruit and veg shop is reluctant to talk about politics, but tells me that he is worried for his livelihood if the current situation continues. This economic interdependency extends to illegitimate businesses. The lucrative Tel Aviv cocaine trade is mostly run by Arabs, but their customer base is almost entirely Jewish. A friend shows me WhatsApp messages from his Palestinian dealer. Usually they are full of texts marking important Jewish holidays, such as a photo of a shofar horn sent on Yom Kippur. After 7th of October, the dealer sent a message decrying the attacks, claiming he had many Jewish friends at the Novo Music Festival and imploring, May God give our people the strength and our soldiers the strength to win. Am Yisrael Chai. The rumour in Jaffa is that organised crime leaders have ordered Palestinian youths to remain at home and avoid any violence, which would be even worse for their already struggling businesses. These are difficult times in Jaffa, but there are hopes for a better future. Last Saturday I attended a joint demonstration held by hundreds of Jewish and Arab Israelis in Charles Glaw Park, built on the ruins of the destroyed Palestinian Manshia neighbourhood that once marked the historic border between Tel Aviv and Jaffa. This protest was the first of its kind to be held since 7th of October, after the High Court overruled an attempt by the police to ban the event. It called for an end to the war in Gaza, for a deal to return all the kidnapped captives in exchange for the thousands of Palestinian prisoners, and for a peaceful solution based on the establishment of a Palestinian state. Sami Abu Shahada, the leader of the Arab Ballad Party, told the crowd, We are in a very difficult place for everyone. Israelis, Palestinians, and for humans in general. For anyone who believes in human rights, these are difficult days. And precisely in these difficult days, what we do is much more important. We are fighting to maintain sanity, humanity, and a hope for a better future for everyone. That was David Swift. Next, Mary Wakefield. Just as Francis Maud was revealing his exciting plans for grand reform of the civil service, I received a message from a friend who once worked in Whitehall. In the subject field, what fresh hell is this? Underneath a screenshot of an email she'd just been sent by a civil servant. There was the name of the sender, Alex Smith, and then underneath that another line. Say my name, it said. A-A-A, Lux, R Lux, Smith. My first thought was that Alex was taking the mig, making fun of people who couldn't pronounce a simple name. Alex won't be long in the job, I thought. How wrong I was. It's not just Alex. Great swathes of the civil service, I discover, have signed up to what's known as the Say My Name Pledge, a commitment to include a phonetic guide to pronouncing your own name in every written communication. Our names are central to who we are as individuals, and getting people's names right is crucial to helping people feel seen, included and valued, I read in Civil Service World. 
I also discovered that in 2021, when large parts of government were still refusing to leave home for fear of COVID, DEFRA nominated itself for an Enterprise Award for outstanding advancement for asking its staff to sign up to the Say My Name pledge. Pronouns are old hat. I'm in debt to this Alex Smith for alerting me. Phonetic pronunciation is the new measure of real progress, which is why Lord Maud should keep a beady eye out for departments that deploy it and mark them down as most especially in need of reform. The Say My Name pledge movement actually began in a reasonable fashion in America as part of the anti-racist business. African-American names are often mispronounced, so the theory goes, and so a phonetic guide spares people the need to constantly correct their colleagues. But it's astonishing the speed with which allies now co-opt, colonise perhaps, the things devised for minority groups. Within a year, Say My Name had found its way into universities and institutions, both in America and the UK, where it swiftly became a code of conduct for everyone, Everyone must participate, a test of loyalty. I, X, do hereby affirm my commitment to the campaign and vow to state my phonetic spelling and to show respect to others' names and celebrate difference. This is a standard Say My Name pledge form. Here, Bournemouth University students cleverly renamed it the Say My Name Safety Pledge and wrapped up the issue of ethnic names with a trans person's right to be called by their chosen trans name which made pronunciation a matter not just for manners, but of actual harm. Quote, being misgendered or deadnamed in any setting can cause people to withdraw from situations and feel excluded from what's going on around them, unquote. Under the dotted signing line on the university name pledge form, the text reads, I pledge, then in bold, do you? I admire the air of genuine threat here, but Bournemouth University have missed a trick. If failing to take pronunciation seriously poses a real risk to the vulnerable, shouldn't there be some punishment for those who break the vow? Take note, there's always room to grow. Oh, where's the harm, you might ask? It's just a little sinister fun. Let the children virtue signal in their sign-offs. Well, to an extent I agree, but civil servants aren't students, and they're supposed to have better things to do than play politics in their bios. They should be clever enough to see, even to care, that a universal pledge to include phonetic spellings will have exactly the opposite effect to the one intended. Take that Alex Smith. He had no choice but to sign the pledge, I'm sure. The civil service had, after all, given themselves awards for adopting the scheme, and his boss was no doubt flushed with pride. But what was poor Alex to write? Alex Smith followed by, say my name, phonetic spelling, Alex Smith. That would have marked him out as passive-aggressive. He had no choice but to concoct a daft name, spelt A-A-A-L-U-H-X-S-M-E-E-T-H. Alex Smith. This is almost designed to deliberately fox any civil servant from outside the Anglosphere. If you think it feels uncomfortable to have someone mispronounce your name, imagining discovering that the colleague you've been calling Arlox for a year is actually Alex. The second casualty of Say My Name is Time. I wish I could believe it was introduced on a whim and not an expensive, protracted process. But there's little hope of that. Think weeks of meetings, steering groups, resolutions, amendments, and so very, very many hours of taxpayer-funded time. The Met Office, owned by the Department for Science, is full of enthusiasm about pronunciation, 
and in a list of its diversity and inclusion highlights for the 2022-23 season, there is a detailed description of how they approached the process. First came an empathy lab, a three-day event for nearly 300 employees, in partnership with something called All Able. It's a mistake to rush into something as significant as spelling. So no actual decision was made, but a steering group was formed to, quote, grow knowledge and skills of digital accessibility across the Met Office, unquote. After an untold number of further meetings, the steering group has decided, cautiously, to introduce an audio name badge for phonetic pronunciation. I'm unsure quite how an audio name badge works. Do you press someone else's badge? Do you proudly press your own at intervals in the office? The most significant objection to an imported fad like Say My Name is that, although it's of no real use to civil servants, it's extremely handy for any of their HR-minded overlords. It sorts the problematic dissenters from the agreeable compliant types in no time. It's just a shame for the country that it's the civil servants who have the guts not to sign up who are exactly the ones we need most. That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Peter Hitchens. I confess I never expected to see myself going to the lavatory on primetime national TV. In fact, the expedition was a failure Sharing a cell, especially with a young man with a record for GBH, is a very constipating experience. When I accepted Shine TV's proposal that I should submit to living alongside a large number of former prisoners in a real but decommissioned jail, I'd agreed to almost anything that might happen, including that. Dozens of cameras covered us the whole time from every angle. We wore microphones around our necks. It is impossible to guard your tongue the whole time. And so my exclamation of, at last, slipped out. And I can see why they used it. I wondered during the whole four days I was inside Shrewsbury Prison just how genuine the experience was. Sometimes it felt very genuine indeed. I confess here that I was truly afraid of what might happen. The building itself, with its low arched doorways and narrow tunnel-like cells, oppresses the spirit and encourages miserable, lonely thoughts. Cunningly, the filmmakers refused, to begin with, to let me have the novel and the history book I'd brought with me, though they allowed me my prayer book and Bible. The first book of Kings has much to recommend it, as to the 39 articles and the forms of prayer to be used at sea, but they're no substitute for history or popular fiction, and I was left to draw on my imagination quite a bit. It did not always take me where I wished to go. It was all very well to know that the ex-prisoners were reformed, but I am an annoying person at the best of times. My plummy voice alone is nowadays close to provocation, and I learned long ago to keep my mouth shut on public transport late at night. As for my opinions, these are just as unpopular among the criminal classes as they are in Blairite salons and there were dark corners where the cameras could not see and where I might easily have fallen downstairs. Some of the retired criminals were genuinely frightening, as those who watched Banged Up will notice, and I was subjected on entry to a sort of outburst of mob fury in which all those involved gave a very good imitation of being hostile to me. When I decided it would be weedy to keep my views on drugs to myself at a session on rehabilitation, the explosion of temper which followed was unwelcome and not surprising, 
I've since rather enjoyed the way many drug liberals have rejoiced in the scene as if being shouted at by convicted criminals invalidates the opinion of the person being shouted at. How does that work? And yet I'm very glad I did it. Many of the ex-prisoners, when off stage, showed me much generosity and kindness. Whatever my opinions and background, and however posh my voice, they appreciated that I'd volunteered for an unpleasant experience in the hope of finding out more than I knew, and perhaps helping others to do so. The same, I think, went for the former prison officers whose role in our jails is so absurdly undervalued. When it was all over, I saw those who'd taken part as blood brothers bound together by an experience nobody else had ever had. One, the fearsome, multi-tattooed Chet, with whom I'd rowed over drugs, later softened towards me and admitted it was a good thing that I, who would normally have crossed the street to avoid him, had now met him face to face and listened to what he had to say. And so it was. Some people have also said nice things about my encounter with Tom, my cellmate, the program showed a brief moment during which I read the Bible to him. In fact, we read to each other for long periods, and we talked very personally far into the night. I only realized later that in exchange for some profound and moving confidences from him, I told him some things I would not normally tell a living soul, which, of course, ended up in the program. Well, again, why not? My even more profound interactions with Aki, a very devout Muslim who still bears the gruesome consequences of a horrible stab wound, do not seem to have attracted the editor's attention. So I will say here, because it will always matter to me, that very late one night we ended up, after many hours of quiet conversation, praying side by side, one Christian and one Muslim. You see, it was almost real. We were actually banged up for hours. When we were not locked in small rooms, we were powerless and fretful. Not since boarding school have I spent so much time in the compulsory company of so many male persons, heard so many filthy jokes, or gone to a gym. It was squalid, dreary, and lonely, and I could not wait for it to end. It was also funny, moving, and, like so many grim experiences, pretty strongly religious. The TV people, when they approached me, were a bit puzzled when I said yes, I suspect that several others had turned them down. This is how I get all my TV gigs. So I tried to explain. I said that I would be ashamed of myself for the rest of my life if I did not do it. I had many times expressed trenchant opinions on prisons and what was wrong with them. What would they be worth if, when asked to get as close as reasonably possible to actual prison, I refused? In which case you may ask if I have now changed those opinions, to which I reply, not in the slightest but perhaps I love my fellow men a little better. That was Peter Hitchens. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed the episode, why not pick up a copy of our magazine? I'm Natasha Froze, and thanks for listening. <laughs>